Thank you for leading us in reading and prayer, Greg. Um, may the Lord bless you this Memorial Day uh, weekend, and what a joy it is to be in the Lord's house together, worship. Yeah. Would you take your copy of God's Word and uh, join me by opening them to the Gospel of John, chapter number 8, this morning. John, chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been uh, going gospel of john here on sunday mornings and um and so here we are in chapter number eight i recall the christian um my pastor telling me among other men this is where you need to start reading you want to start reading your bible start in the gospel of john uh, it is the nutrients which our faith grows and so just uh encouragement uh, to you. I think that's pretty good advice. Uh, it's a good place to read. Uh, it's my desire and has been my desire in this study that we as a church would uh, see as John testifies at the beginning in chapter number one, the glory of Christ and, and seeing him that we would believe uh, and uh, that we would keep on seeing him all the way through this gospel study and keep on believing. Amen. And so that's my desire. Follow along with me as I read uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through verse number 11 in chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would just apply it to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I was driving, it was probably 20 years ago, around the time David was born or roughly one year old, uh, to North Carolina. I had a job in Asheville that I was working at, and it was about a two-hour drive. So 5.30 in the morning, uh, a joyful a trip on my way over the mountain between Tennessee and uh, Asheville, North Carolina. There's a stretch of road that's very similar to uh, Route 8 in so much that it is hard to go 55 miles an hour, uh, especially if you're not paying attention. And to add with that, uh, there's a lot of state troopers on that stretch of road that uh, are waiting for people that find it hard to go 55 miles an hour. Needless to say, I was driving that morning very early, not paying attention. I was listening to a sermon. See how I made that spiritual, don't you? (laughs) 
There I was spending time with the Lord and the cops interrupted me. Um, anyway, I was moving along in my oblivious state, caught up in the spirit, in the body, out of the body, and the Lord knows. I, I noticed, as, I, as you would, a cop in front of you, and then I noticed how fast I was going. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Look at your speed limit, isn't it? So I just pulled over and waited for the cop to turn his lights on, turn around and come and get me uh, and carry me off. And handing me a ticket, he said, here's the ticket, here's the date, here's how much it is. Uh, here's the court date, and if you want to contest this, you can show up. And, and the thought hit my mind, what am I going to contest? I'm not going to tell you how fast I was going. He was nice and brought it down from uh, a greater charge. But he caught me. I, mean, I was guilty. There was no defense. Um, and there was no need to even talk about contesting uh, the debate. Well, some of you have had experiences like that. I would venture to say all of us in some way have uh, been guilty. We've been exposed for something we've did, some violation or maybe many. Or as the old saying goes, we've been caught red-handed right in the middle of it uh, and has been brought forth uh, that we were wrong. Now, sometimes that exposure brings about a weight of consequences and sometimes not so much. But nevertheless, we all have this idea of being guilty being found out we see something of that in our text this morning uh, as we will look at it in just a few moments uh, the leaders they seek to find some occasion something wrong with jesus something that will stick so they can accuse him and they walk away themselves condemned uh, so we are surprised a little bit in how this narrative goes and then we're introduced to a woman who has no defense at all and yet she walks away having been comforted by that transforming work of the gospel. In one way, the story itself is a gospel transaction. Uh, and so I want to walk through it together with you as we look at the conspiracy of these scribes and Pharisees. Uh, and then I want us to see the confrontation they have with Jesus. And then we'll look at the comfort of the redeeming work of God's grace. Before we look at that, we need to deal with something else. Most of you have uh, a modern translation of the Bible, and what you'll find here as uh, most all new translations of the Bible has a fence sort of around this section of Scripture, around this passage, and in letters, bold, capitalized, so that you don't miss it. As ESV says here, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And so what do we do with that? Well, we're to acknowledge uh, that it's there. There's no way to miss it. Um, King James translations, uh, translation does not have that, so you just kind of read it on. And, and yet here we're come to this fact that uh, many scholars, most scholars, uh, agree that many of the early transcripts do not include this narrative. And so that, that brings us up to another point. I'll try to be brief with this. There's a very technical field of study referred to as textual criticism. Uh, and it sounds bad, doesn't it? It's like something you don't want to get. Um, people who like to sit in a dark room and read stuff that's unreadable and compare stuff with other stuff. So maybe that's in your wheelhouse and you like to do that. We need more people doing it, I assume. Uh, nevertheless, they remind us that God has given us a, a treasure chest of riches 
when it comes to the Bible and his preservation of the Bible throughout these two millennia. In fact, uh, experts tell us that there are about 25,000 manuscripts, pieces of the New Testament literature that has been preserved for us, some dating early into the first and second century. That is remarkable. No other resource in all of human history has that sort of witness. Uh, So if you like numbers and uh, you're into details, 5,800 Greek manuscripts in existence dating back in antiquity, 10,000 ancient Latin manuscripts, uh, 9,300 other manuscripts that have been copied in Coptic or Syriac or Ethiopic and other languages such as that. And the New Testament has been virtually every bit of it quoted by the early church fathers to remind us that the work uh, and the word that you have in front of you is what the apostles wrote. Uh, This is not the original. We know manuscripts means that people handwritten copies of the letter and they, that's how they copied it. Thank God for modern technology. Um, Nevertheless, through this study uh, of, textual criticism they come to this realization and through the evidence of the manuscripts that this was not included in many of the best earlier manuscripts it was not that it was missing altogether throughout church history it's found its place in several different places in the gospel of john earlier in chapter 7 later on chapter number 12 and then it was even found in luke in one in one uh, manuscript and some believe rightly so because the language seems more familiar to that of Luke than of John. Now, for me and you who read a New Testament in English, we probably wouldn't make any, it wouldn't matter to us who, what, what it sounded like because we don't see that. Just think about accent the way they write. And so that might give you a clue. We are different, aren't we? Just a little bit. So what do you do with it? If you have this in front of your Bible, the earlier manuscripts do not include this, what do you do with this as a pastor? You're left with a a predicament that I've been thinking of all two weeks, maybe a little longer. Well, I come to the conclusion you preach it. And uh, so we'll look at it, and I'll give you the reason, a couple of reasons why. One, because it's truthful. Uh, There's nothing in here. Uh, that is dishonest or, or uh, nothing that disagrees with Scripture, we'll see in just a moment. But also many scholars who believe it may not have been part of the original manuscript or original letter that John wrote believe it was a, an actual literal occurrence. This actually took place and it was preserved in one fashion or another. And so many of them argue, and I think rightly so, that this was a historical fact. I think there's good evidence for that. So it's truthful. Secondly, it's consistent. Uh, We believe in the continuity of Scripture. Uh, God does not contradict himself. Amen? Uh, He doesn't say one thing and then do another or say one thing here and then change his mind over there. He is the same, uh, and his word is the same. And so what we see is a continuity of Scripture. There's no contradiction. You could take this out of your Bible, and no doctrine that we believe that the Bible teaches is affected. That's very important. Uh, Just as important as it is, we leave this in our Bibles, and no doctrine of Scripture is affected. It it helps, it gives some illumination, uh, but it does not alter any doctrine or any part of Scripture. Uh, The story itself is in line with the character of Christ and the nature of the rest of the New Testament. 
And thirdly, uh, and I think that's why we find it in the Gospel of John, it is very illuminating when it comes to what Jesus has already been saying or what has already been said about Jesus all through the Gospel. Namely, John three seventeen, where he does not come to bring condemnation. He is the light of the world. John 5, where judgment is given unto him and many other places we see that. And so with that, let's just look at it together. It's kind of an awkward, clunky introduction, I know. But nevertheless, let's look at it together, okay? First, I want us to consider, as, um, as the narrative is set up for us, the conspiracy. We like those, don't we? We, we like conspiracies. We get on the internet and you google this conspiracy and that conspiracy well uh, it's not new they had this all the way back in jesus's day notice with me beginning verse number 53 as he sets it up for us they went out each to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives Uh, charles spurgeon has one sermon on this whole text and it is basically that verse Uh, so it didn't help me any Thank you, Charles. He goes on and says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to them, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. There's a lot of questions that kind of fill your mind, what's going on behind the background. But John gives us a clue here of, of something that is going on. In verse number 6, of course, they said the law of Moses command us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, could you imagine the council of the scribes and Pharisees plotting in the dark or in some back room? How are we going to get him? Uh, evidently, he spoke like no other person spoke with such boldness and authority. He displayed wisdom, which was uncom- uh, uncomparable to other men. How are we going to bring him into a position Uh, to where we nab him. That's what's going on here, or what went on before this, leading up to this moment. Uh, We know that the Bible says that these scribes and Pharisees were seeking to find occasion to put him to death. Um, Here is a man who did nothing but good among them, and yet they are trying to, to kill him, trying to do away with him, And so they're trying to come up with some sort of conundrum to where they can put him in a a mold and where they can find a public offense. It is no surprise that they do this uh, in the middle of his teaching seminar. So here he is, point number four, or whatever he's teaching on. And here these people come in with this situation because, because it's a scenario where he will have to deal with it in one fashion or another. There's a multitude around, and if they can trap him, they can do away with him. They were trying to test him. Well, uh, the issue is here with a woman caught in adultery. We know the Bible says in the Old Testament that uh, adultery was capital, or the consequences of adultery was capital punishment. It was not carried off, uh, carried out very often because it was hard to catch people in the act of adultery. That is more of a secret thing that they did without other people around. And you can kind of fill that in for yourselves. But Deuteronomy 22 brings, comes to mind, if a man found laying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge this evil from Israel, or Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely put to death. 
So you see this kind of situation. They're bringing this woman to him. They're trying to entrap him, uh, and we'll see that in just a moment. And what they're doing when they bring this woman, they say, this is what Moses says. What do you say? They're trying to pit Jesus and Moses against each other. Will Jesus validate Moses, or will he contradict him? To say Moses said this is essentially to say God has said this through Moses, God giving us the law, and this is what God has said. Will you contradict this? Why is this such a a tempting place to put Jesus in? Well, I think for one reason, they knew that he had pity on the outcast, and they knew he had pity on sinners. In fact, we find that to be the case. One of the critiques against him was that he was a friend of publican and sinners. Now, some of you probably ought to say, amen, thank God for that right now. Because that is a comforting fact we find in the Gospels. But there's an occasion in Luke's account where he is eating with a Pharisee, Simon by name, and as he's eating there, a woman of the town, the Bible says, a sinner, how would you like to bear some weight like that? And she comes in with a, a ointment. She, she weeps and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries it with the hair of her head. And so while she's doing this extravagant scene of worship, ultimate display of humility and worship, offering up to Jesus uh, her, herself, her glory, her, her humility uh, in that sense of washing and drying with her hair, Simon says, man, if this guy were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was. Uh, that was touching him, she's a sinner. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. He would rebuke her. So it's well known that Jesus had pity and mercy on people around him. And maybe it was for this reason that this scenario uh, came about, presented itself, knowing that he might be merciful. Now, why is it such a temptation or a spot to be put in? Well, one, if Jesus said, show mercy to her and don't stone her. After all, we've all sinned. And let's have pity on her. I mean, it's bad, we know, but it's okay. Then they could label him as a heretic. After all, he is is dismantling the law of God. He's rejecting what the law of God says. The law says, do this. This is the consequences of her sin. And Jesus said, and so naturally there in public at the temple, he's a heretic. Well, we know he's not a heretic. The other option is if he says yes, well, stoner, that's what the law says, then, then obey Moses. Well, the, the problem with that is Rome was the only people in town who was allowed to do um, executions. They reserved that for themselves. And so Jesus, maybe he's not a heretic, but he's an insurrectionist. He's saying the authority of Rome is no good, and, and you, you get how that kind of continues to roll on. Could you imagine how eager they were when whoever in the group says, I got an idea? How zealous they were when they, I, 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 even, got a, I even got a subject. I even got a, uh, what do you call those, whatever they call it. I got someone to throw in the middle of this to, to bring about this plan. I think often in our society how clever we think we are as people. Especially as we come up with those unanswerable questions and those silly things that we think are are wise and and reason to doubt God or doubt God's work. Can God make a rock too big for him to pick up? That's nonsense. And yet we pride ourselves in these things. 
how zealous the world is to disprove Christianity or throw mud uh, on, on the Bible by, by all of their worldly wisdom. In fact, they will find themselves much like these men here, and either in this life or in the life to come, embarrassed. They will be exposed for their own wickedness. So that's, that's the conspiracy we see in the passage, kind of setting up a woman caught in the act of adultery. They throw in the middle of it. Uh, evidently, she, there's no defense for her. Jesus is left in a situation. What are you going to do? And so let's see what he does next, the confrontation. Verse number 6, all of this is played out in public. They bring the woman to him, throwing her in the midst of all of this. The law says this, what do you say? And such eager, bloodthirsty men who don't care about the woman. Actually, the woman, she is just kind of on the, on the outside. She's a means to an end. What they want is the death of Jesus. Their prey is not the woman. Their prey is Jesus himself. Verse number 6, they said this to test him that he might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus naturally rebuked them. Is that what he says? Have you read the proverb where he says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself? Jesus doesn't even acknowledge them. He bends down and writes. Now, we have no book that Jesus ever written uh, with his own hand. So we wonder to ourselves, what in the world did he write? Well, I'm sure someone has wrote a dissertation on that and tried to come up with the answer to that. But the truth is we don't know. It doesn't tell us. He, he wrote on the ground with his finger. He was, in, in one sense, ignoring them, not entertaining them in the way they wanted to be entertained. He would not enter into their foolishness or their folly. And so you see verse number 7, the, the tension rising. You can imagine, let's guess, we don't know. Let's guess there's about 10 guys standing around with all their, their garb and and all this anger and hatred for Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. And, and they're all saying at the very same time, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What do you say? And so Jesus naturally at that point stands up and says, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Some suggest maybe Jesus was writing Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, where it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. It's fitting, especially in the context of what happened in the last chapter. We don't know. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. I, I honestly think it's... it's it's exciting to think about, but we don't know. But what we do know is Jesus confronts them. And seeking occasion against him, Jesus now exposes them. And he does so by this statement here in verse number 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Well, what do you do with that? Is Jesus saying we're not to judge or, or no one's ever to make a judgment call? I don't think so. I think he's expecting us to carry out laws and, and to judge righteously and rightly and seek justice. 
And what he's doing in this is exposing their motivation behind it. Now, it could be, and it's seen in two different ways. Some suggest what Jesus is saying here, that you who are innocent of this matter. And some suggest maybe it's the matter of adultery or not adultery or or something similar to that. Or are you clear of this matter as far as this certain case? You can't be a witness and condemn someone if you've had a hand in it in some fashion, maybe Maybe in, in bringing it together or in, in carrying out false justice or injustice. And have you noticed in the text, it tells us that they only brought the woman. And we don't need to be uh, too imaginative that it takes more than two to commit an act like this. Where's the man? We don't know. They didn't bring him. Some say, well, they didn't bring him because you couldn't condemn a, a, a man. Rome had to do that. You could condemn a woman. I don't think that's the case. I think that they know in this exposure that what they are doing is not according to the law of God. Jesus is condemning their actions, even standing before him, and all that came to this point, that, that in order to cast the first stone, you must be free of any complicity or any part in this sin. You must be carrying it out rightly and we know they're not you can't carry out justice without carrying out justice on both parties as the text tells us in Deuteronomy and we know that they don't care about this woman whatsoever nor the law of God otherwise they wouldn't seek to condemn a man who is innocent other translators, and I think rightly so, that Jesus is saying more than just being guilty, guiltless in this matter of this woman caught in the situation of adultery. I think he's bringing it back to the full weight of the law. You who want to condemn this woman, you want to bring Moses into this and say Moses condemns her. Who of you standing among us here is not condemned by Moses? Isn't that what he told them earlier in chapter number 5 and 6? There is one that condemns you. I don't condemn you. There's one that condemns you. Moses condemns you to the people. Which of you, if being judged strictly and and rigidly by the law, you who want to wield the law so recklessly and maliciously without mercy, will not likewise receive judgment without mercy? Which of you are innocent to condemn this woman and put her to death? Well, the answer is no one. Whoever can do it can be the first to throw the stone. He's exposing their sinfulness, isn't he? You're all guilty. If we're to go by the law of Moses in the way you want to go by, now he's not dismissing the law of Moses, but what he is saying is you see her sin outwardly. It's notorious. It's shameful. But which of you will not stand condemned before Moses even though your sin may be inwardly. One, openly, clearly without defense, but it really brings us back to what the Bible tells us later on, doesn't it? How many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? There is none righteous, the Bible tells us. No, not one. All have gone our own way. We don't seek after God 
And the truth we see even in the situation in front of us, the narrative in front of us, is that, that sometimes it may be more evident in other people's lives in the notoriousness of their sin and choices that they make. But the truth is it is a reality for every one of us. Those who have made all the wrong choices and, and done all the wrong things and those who pretend that they have done all the right things both stand guilty when it comes to Moses and his condemnation which he meets out. But you who without sin cast the first stone, they come to condemn Jesus and they find themselves condemned by him because none fit that criteria. Could you imagine being there in the temple courtyard and hearing the stones falling to the ground just one by one? The text tells us, and the older ones went away first. Notice verse number nine. When they heard it, heard what Jesus said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. He took all the wind out of their cell. They come eagerly, zealous, thirsting for blood, and they walk away in utter defeat and shame. And guilt works that way. The gospel works like that as it exposes us, reveals to us the shamefulness, the sinfulness. It's what the Holy Spirit does in convicting us, making sin exceedingly sinful. The men... And all of their zealousness woke away, humbled, humiliated, and condemned, convicted, and condemned. And don't miss the fact that it's the older ones that drop the rock first, to walk away. I don't, I don't know why. I have a few guesses. Maybe because the older men are wise enough to know when they've been beat. Younger men are... are Thicker-headed. Can I say that? Does that make sense to you guys? Does that seem normal to you? Sometimes we're blinded by our own zealousness and we think too much of ourselves when we're younger. It happens when you're older, but you tend to, with life and bruises and cuts and scrapes, realize there's some weight to what was just said that Jesus said. You realize the burden which you carry is much heavier and your shortcomings are much more real when you've lived and walked this earth for 60 years, 50 years, 40 years, whatever it may be, than when you're 20. Maybe that's the reason it happened that way. And nevertheless, in confronting Jesus to entrap him, they are exposed themselves of being unworthy to judge and condemn. And that's very important. Because God will not give judgment, not ultimate judgment and condemnation into the sin- hands of a sinful man. Into the hands, ultimately, last day judgment into the hands of those who have perversed the law of God and who have violated it. No, the one who wields judgment at the end must himself be free and clear and innocent of all wrong. And so Jesus puts it before the crowd and says, which one of you fits that? They drop the rock, they walk away. And notice thirdly, not only the confrontation with Jesus, but the comfort of the redemptive work of grace. And I've tried to say this morning, and I I say it without hesitation that we're all guilty 
It isn't just a speeding ticket violation. It isn't just having to pay a, a fine of that sort. We've all violated the law of God. We've all fallen short of his glory. He created us in his image to bear forth his image in this created world, to glorify him and to love him with all of our heart, soul, and body. And we have rejected that. Adam rejected that in the garden. And we have all received that kind of condemnation because we have all sinned ourselves and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's worth noting again, just to reiterate, that that guilt is, is sometimes seen in, in extraordinary ways and shameful and public ways in this life and, and hurtful and broken ways. But sometimes that guilt is seen in a quiet and, and hidden way. Or at least it will be revealed. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And with that reminder, we really stand more like this woman than we know. And the gospel is preached to us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Uh, we're not like the guys who are hiding and who are self-righteous. Really, what the Bible is saying, no, you are exposed without defense. What could the woman do? She's caught in the very act. There's no argument to make. There's no contesting it. There's no way you can. There's no way you would. We are left speechless. And yet what we find is such amazing grace, I could say, or, or amazing comfort in verse number 11 as he looks and everyone walks away, Jesus knowing what they would do. And, and you've got to wake up pretty early in the morning to get over on him, right? In fact, there's no morning to wake up early enough to get over on Jesus. And everyone walks away and he asks the woman, where are they? Who's casting the first stone? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Isn't that beautiful? Neither do I condemn you. Now, you know, that might sound somewhat comforting to you in, in sort of a way that someone who just said, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to throw that up in your face, and I'm not going to throw a rock at you. We've all kind of messed up, and we all kind of, we, you know, we all got problems and skeletons and closets and all this other stuff. You know, I'm not going to, just go on. Just you're free to go. That, that is kind of a grace, especially if you're facing death in the moment. Wouldn't you agree with that? Come on, stay with me. That's good. That'd be good news. But consider the one who says this. And the criteria for judging and condemning her is one who is without guilt, without sin, without violation of God, and one standing in her midst has all right to, to judge her, whose conscience has never been stained by guilt or sin, perfectly holy, never erring from God's truth or God's way. That's remarkable to think about, isn't it? The perfect uh, holiness of Christ. 
Not only is he, is he standing there without any sin, without the stain of sin, without conscience or guilt or any of those things that go along with the consequences of sin, but he's standing there having already told us in the Gospel of John that the Father has given all judgment to me, all right and authority to judge is mine. So what do you do when you stand before someone who is the judge of all the earth, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and you've been caught in the very act, been exposed for your sinfulness? Wouldn't that seem like a troubling state to be in? So when he says, neither do I condemn you, his words carry much more weight than you looking over to your buddy. Don't worry about it, man. It's all right. We all mess up. Or your girlfriend and saying, whatever, you know, stuff that we say. In fact, what we find is that is that gospel transaction, isn't it? Because not only is it in the person who says, neither do I condemn you, but really the cost of that statement. The fact that he doesn't just say, don't worry about it, and sin doesn't matter, and condemnation isn't really a thing after all anyway. It's just something we tell people to straighten up and stay in line. There's a weightiness to condemnation. There's a weightiness to the consequences of our sin. There's a weightiness in the reality that we have violated the law of God and we have fallen short. Jesus does not minimize this in this statement. But he can say this because he himself will take that guilt. He himself will take that shame and take that offense And satisfy God's righteous command. He will bear our condemnation. Dealing with guilt in our own life, we are to turn to the cross, aren't we? And the comfort of the gospel being made right with God, as he says in Romans 5 and 8, we are being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Isn't that good terms? The war is over. There's peace, fellowship, communion with God and chapter number 80 begins that great chapter was there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus there's no damnation no judgment no eternal consequences to the sin and the guilt that we have all been guilty of that the gospel has exposed us for and again not because God doesn't care about sin Not because he doesn't make a distinction between holiness and unholiness. In fact, if you know your Bible, he does that emphatically all through it. But because he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus saying to this woman, neither do I condemn you is in light of the fact of who he is. He is the one who has the right to condemn but not just has the right to condemn, but he also is the one who has taken that condemnation so that he could grant forgiveness. Isn't that the gospel transaction? Not just to leave you with the weight of guilt, the law of Moses hanging over your shoulder, but to say, look to the cross, come to the cross. That is where that guilt and shame is buried. And sometimes as a Christian, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? We have good memories. We wrestle with thoughts that come back and are uh, get into our space, things that try to bring out and drag out shame and all the other stuff that come with that. And, and 
Beloved, if you are in Christ Jesus, then we're to bring all that back to the cross and say, no, I have been forgiven. Forgiven. And all of that and all the mess that goes with that has been crucified with Christ that I might live a new life. And that's what you see at the end of this, doesn't it? It was said of a theologian in Augustine's day that he would not refer to this passage of Scripture because he afraid it would bring licentiousness or, or license for young women to commit adultery and ask God to forgive them. Um, and I think he missed the point of the text. And I think it has been missed over and over. Notice the very end of this. Neither do I condemn you. That's good news. Go. From now on, sin no more. Well, think about that great reality that, well, we even sung the song this morning, Just As I Am, didn't we? Let's tell you to come, come as you are. You can't fix yourself up. You're not making, I mean, the woman had no opportunity to make herself look any better and try to cover up any shame of the incident. It was just brought out. We cannot make ourselves more appealing to God. And that should be a comfort to us, even though we try hard, that maybe if I do this or do that or do this, then God will be like, welcome me and, and forgive me of the rest of this stuff and receive me. There isn't just as I am. I, I think that's true in, in one sense. But the reality, the grace of God is that it doesn't leave us as we are. He may find you in a ditch or in a gutter somewhere, but he doesn't leave you in the ditch or in the gutter somewhere. That's not grace. That's just ignoring you. That's not love. That's just kind of handing out something and just going on their way. Love is restoring. It, it is rescuing. It's, it's reforming. It's the very thing he tells her, go and sin no more. He's mentioned this earlier to one man that he's healed. Go and sin no more lest something worse come upon you. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? New creation. The old is passed away, behold, the new has come. He comes and rescues us and informs us, Christian, do you know what God has planned for you? To conform you to the image of his sinless son. That heaven will be a place to our perfect holiness, no sin, no curse, no, that, is, that is the mark. And do you know that his will for you right now is to walk that way? Walk towards that destination. We don't do it on our own. We do it by God's grace and his work in us and through us and the word of God and all those things. But it is a reminder for any who thinks that salvation is just getting a little bit of forgiveness and going on doing what you want to do the rest of your life. That is not the gospel. That is not encountering the grace of God of Jesus Christ. The comfort of God's grace is not only does he meet us where we are, but he brings us from there to be something that you and I could not be without him. And praise God for that. It is true if you're here this morning you don't know Christ, you will never be good enough to be saved. Not a person in here has ever been good enough. And 
And Jesus knows that that's why he came, to be like us. And you know he took all of your badness and he died on a cross bearing the weight, the consequences, the condemnation of sin so that if you would turn to him, put your faith and trust in Christ, you would be forgiven, restored in fellowship with him, with the Father, that you would be rescued and he would make in you and of you what you could never make in and of yourselves. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. But you have to acknowledge or see the reality that coming to Christ exposes you of being needy. But in that exposure, he gives us a cloak, doesn't he? Neither do I condemn you. Wear that. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning we gather together. Thank you for your grace. Thank you as I look around this room this morning. We see so many trophies of your grace in many ways you've worked and drawn and shaped redeemed and rescued lord i pray that you would do more that you would do more through us and even in us as we consider something like we've seen this morning Lord, I pray for those here this morning that may be struggling with guilt in their past or sorrow or shame of sin. Lord, I pray that they would come to the cross, find a solace there, find help there, because it is there where Christ paid the penalty for that. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that may not know you, that you would just open their eyes, that they may see the beauty of Christ, and in seeing him, that they would come. To him, in Jesus' name, amen.